Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1416 entitled Zero V for Victory. Our podcast title today is Hagrid and Harry Potter. Uh, yes, I would probably use that before. It's not that original, but I was really scraping for a podcast title today. Uh, I am Megan McHugh running solo today. Uh, and so on today's show... Uh, we'll be heading into the desert seeking victory and taking a very focused gossipless look, very important note to make, at Olivia Wilde's latest film, Don't Worry Darling. You might wonder, but Megan, does that fall into your remit on Zero G? And I'm not going to give away too much, but yes, it does. Fear not. Uh, before we get to all that, though, uh, we'll be paying tribute to Robbie Coltrane, of course, first up. Uh, we did play that track at the top of the show, and that was, of course, referencing his beloved role as Rubius Hagrid in the Harry Potter series. That track was, of course, from John Williams's original score for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's slash Sorcerer's Stone, and that track was called Prologue. 
And that's just a nice little ditty that I thought we'd um, use to introduce the show today. So on to our in memoriam. Yes, so Anthony Robert Macmillan, uh, Scottish actor better known as Robbie Coltrane. Uh, He did die earlier this year in this month. Yes, in October. And so just want to pay a bit of a tribute to him. He's probably most widely recognised from his role as Hagrid in the eight Harry Potter films. And uh, so that's obviously something to note. But if we take a a throwback to his early career, he started out uh, appearing next to Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson in a series called Alfresco, which I've not seen. It seems a little before my time, perhaps, but it was a comedy sketch show and it was shot on location, unlike a lot of um, comedy sketches that are shot like on a set. And it was written by Ben Elton. And later on, Fry and Laurie also had some writing credits for the series as well. I'd say Coltrane's first breakout or another role that he's probably widely known for is his role in Cracker. So he played a criminal psychologist, uh, Dr. Eddie Fitz Fitzgerald uh, in Cracker. I do actually remember that looking at that series, I was like, oh, I do remember this series, but I've never watched it myself. Maybe I should love a good criminal psychologist um, romp. Uh, He also appeared in the James Bond films Goldeneye and The World Is Not Enough. He did voice work for the animated film Brave, and he also starred in the two Van Helsing films. Personally, I myself mainly know him from his role as Hagrid. And it was a role that his kids encouraged him to take. And I think a lot of people are glad that he did. He was actually one of the first roles cast, if not the first role cast, and uh, for the film adaptations of Harry Potter. And in my opinion, he's a really lovely fit for Hagrid, who's a very beloved character. And so I can see that it was very important to get that casting right. And I think they've done so. He was one of the first characters introduced in the first film. He's Harry's first link in exposure to the Wizarding World and a bit of a connection with this magical other world. And uh, he's, yeah, he's like a big bloke, but he's very soft and sweet inside. And as obviously the series progresses, we learn more about Hagrid and his soft spots and how they get him into trouble sometimes, his love of dangerous creatures. Uh, I do think that Coltrane made the role iconic and I think it's really lovely that he'll live on as Hagrid I don't know about you but I did tear up there's a bit of a a snippet from the reunion going round where he talks about you could still watch in 50 years and and he won't be around but Hagrid will Hagrid will be there oh I feel a bit teary just thinking about it uh which I think is just such a lovely idea so a tidbit that I thought Rob might find interesting uh Coltrane was asked to play a role the role Tarkus I'm not sure who that is, uh, in the Doctor Who serial in 1963, Revelation of the Daleks, but that role did end up going to Trevor Cooper. And Coltrane was also in the running to be the eighth Doctor in Doctor Who the movie in 1996. So there you go. There's always some tangential connection to the Doc. So I thought that was pretty interesting to note as well. I just wanted to say those few words in honour of Coltrane. I think he's a ripper actor and a really lovely Hagrid. And so just wanted to shout that out on today's show to get things started. I think before we head into the rest of the show, I've got a couple of things uh, to look at, some bits and bobs that I think might be of interest to people. But before we dig into all of that, let's hear another track from John Williams' score for one of the early Harry Potter movies, Prisoner of Azkaban. So this one is Hagrid the Professor. So I thought we might just take a listen to that in honour of Robbie Coltrane. Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? 
That was, of course, from John Williams's score to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. That was the track Hagrid the Professor in honour of Robbie Coltrane and the work he did as Hagrid and in multiple other TV shows and movies that we have known and loved here on Zero G. Okay, so on to the random portion of the show. I do enjoy sometimes bringing in like my little bucket of random things I've seen on social media or in the news of, um, or on my streaming services of things to kind of flag with you that might be of interest. So the first one is a movie. I thought it was a TV show at first, but no, it's a movie called My Best Friend's Exorcism. So this one is very much falling into the realm of, we know that the throwback kind of retro spirit is really permeating a lot of media these days, very popular trope. Um, I don't, I'm not, no complaints from me because I love that vibe, you know, 80s, 70s, retro, neon, high ponytails, scrunchies, etc. Uh, and so anyway, this film falls squarely within that vibe. Uh, I had clocked this film a while ago actually as being in development uh, and I was surprised to see that it's already done and it's on Amazon Prime now. It is finished. And so what is it? It is actually based on a book by an author we've covered here on Zero G before. So Grady Hendrix, he's a writer who's done a lot of books that are just prime adaptation fodder. So his book, My Best Friend's Exorcism, on which the same titled film is based. So... That one is, the book came out in 2016, it's set in the 80s, and it's about two high school best friends, Abby and Gretchen, and it's about the kind of chaos that in, ensues when one of them seemingly becomes possessed by a demon after an ill-fated night with friends at a family lake house. Nothing ever, nothing good ever happens at family lake house, <laughs> like, that's how all the bad things start. So it's directed by Damon Thomas, and it's from a screenplay by Jenna... Lamia and it's produced by the director of Freaky which is the body swap comedy horror with Vince Vaughn and uh, Happy Death Day which is the Groundhog Day horror movie so um, I think it's definitely leaning into some of the thriller horror vibe as well and I think it's also squarely in a bit of comedy tongue-in-cheek too so it looks like there's a lot of 80s throwbacks pop tune drops, tongue-in-cheek references and, like, horror tropes galore. The trailer kind of gave me, like, Jennifer's body crossed with Stranger Things vibes. So, yeah. And that throws back to the book, the kind of source material, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which I have a copy of. I started reading it and because it has this iconic cover which looks like an old VHS and it's even got like a fake sticker on it and it's like all neon and, and things like that. So that piqued my interest. Uh, I started reading it and I just don't think I was in the mood for it. So I should either pick it back up, maybe check out the film, but I thought I'd flag it because it looked kind of interesting. And Hendrix's other works, as I mentioned, are all kind of in development too. So we've covered the book he wrote, Final Girl Support Group, on the show which talks a bit about Final Girls, which has kind of become a bit of a popular topic at the moment. Final Girl is like the last woman standing at the end of a horror movie. So he wrote a book called Final Girl Support Group, which kind of covers a bit of that. Um, and he's also, other books he's written include The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which came out in 2020. That's a supernatural story set in the South, and it's about a suburban, it's all in the title, it's about a suburban book club of older Southern women who protect their neighbourhood from a newcomer, a mysterious stranger. I think it's been described as like a fried green tomatoes and steel magnolias mixed with Dracula, like 
<laughs> what an iconic combo. And that is in development as a TV sti- as a TV series. There's also another book he wrote called Horror Store, and that came out in 2014. That was one of his earlier books, and it's a haunted mall story, and it's set in a furniture superstore, <laughs> pretty obviously based on Ikea, where three em- employees stay overnight to investigate strange happenings that have been affecting the store. Uh, that was going to be a TV series that got scrapped, but it now might be a film. So kind of intrigued by that too. So that's just some of his other works. And as you can tell, I certainly agree. I think they're things that would be great to see adapted for the screen. Uh, but let's see maybe how this My Best Friend's Exorcism looks. So that one is on Amazon Prime. If you think it sounds interesting, I think it's definitely capitalizing on the whole interest in the 80s. And it's kind of meant to be a bit of a funny possession story. <laughs> A funny position story, yeah. Uh, Need more of those in our lives. So the trailer for that looks certainly very interesting and played a track that I think we will listen to now. And I'm sorry to everybody because, um, to be quite honest, it's very catchy and it'll probably be in your head. So I think we're going to now listen to I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany, which plays in the trailer for My Best Friend's Exorcism. Book by Grady Hendrix, movie by movie by Damon Thomas. So let's take a listen to that now. This is Neil Gaiman in the dangerous alphabet zero, G comes last, Z waits alone and it's not for a thing. Yes, you are listening to Zero G on 3RRR. I am Megan McHugh and that was I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany. And I'm not sorry for playing that because that is a real bop. What an enjoyable song. Uh, that was in reference to My Best Friend's Exorcism, now on Amazon Prime. Have not watched. Might be good. Check it out. Uh, the next random thing I just wanted to flag was I was very excited to see the teaser for this, which depicts almost nothing. I'd say it, it's, it's, it raises more questions than it answers. But Netflix released the teaser for their adaptation of 100 Years of Solitude. Cien Anos de Soledad, which is what it's going to be called, and it is going to be in Spanish, which is another tick good sign. Uh, so they released the teaser uh, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, so Marquez is obviously a Colombian author. He wrote 100 Years of Solitude as well as many other classics. Uh, he wrote that in 1967, and it covers multi-generational epic, uh, magical realism, the Buendia family who um, founded the fictional town of Macondo. And this Netflix adaptation is going to be the first ever like visual audio adaptation. So cautious anticipation. Uh, Jose Rivera from who worked on Motorcycle Diaries is going to write, oh, it's a series. My bad. Not a movie at all. Series. Great. I think we need the room to make it a series. Uh, He's going to be writing it along with screenwriters Natalia Santa, Camilla Bruget and Albatros Gonzalez, all of whom are Colombian. And also in conjunction with Alex Garcia Lopez, who worked on The Witcher, and Laura Mora, who worked on Killing Jesus. Oh, sorry. Lopez and Laura Mora will be directing the first season. So I think it's great, obviously, that they seem to be wanting to do this right by including um, people like t- talent from appropriate places. Uh, so it's going to be produced by Diego Ramirez Shrimp and Carolina Caicedo uh, and Joseph Amores. I'm so sorry about all those names, but <laughs> they're producing, but it's also being developed 
with the cooperation, input and blessing of Marquez's children, uh, Rodrigo Garcia and Gonzalo Garcia. So again, the family is involved, which is great to see. The bad news is no release date, literally just that teaser, (laughs) which looks great. And from the details I've seen, I'm intrigued. Uh, I would like to see that. I mean, it's a troublesome thing to adapt in that I just, uh, it's going to be challenging. So we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully Netflix will throw money at it, get the right talent involved, and it will be something to behold. So keep an eye out for further updates on that. That is Netflix's project adaptation of 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Now have one more little bitty to talk through, but before we do that, let's hear another track because why not? Because what I'm going to talk about next has a really great soundtrack, which includes this track by the Pixies, uh, Wave of Mutilation. So (laughs) let's listen to that, bit of a tone shift, but let's hear that before we talk about our final little random piece of information. This is Raymond D. Feist, the man who started the Rift War. Mm, Will it help if I say I'm sorry? Zero G, it's totally lacking in gravity. Okay, last random thing that I wanted to talk about. That was uh, Wave of Mutilation by the Pixies, and that appears on the soundtrack of Netflix's... I promise I'm not sponsored by Netflix. There's just some interesting stuff coming out on that platform. Uh, Netflix's series Midnight Club. So Midnight Club is like a horror mystery thriller TV series, all things I like. Uh, It's created by Mike Flanagan and Leah Fong. And so Flanagan is like the showrunner, executive producer that whole thing, and it is an adaptation of uh, the novel by Christopher Pike, and that is a huge nostalgia memory moment for me because I read so much Christopher Pike when I was at school. So there's a 1994 novel called Midnight Club written by Christopher Pike, which this is sort of an adaptation of, but what's actually going to happen is, or Flanagan's vision, is that uh, all 28 books written by Christopher Pike Um, or maybe not all 28 books, 28 of the books written by Christopher Pike will be covered in this series. So it's kind of like a storytelling around the campfire kind of series where they'll say, say different spooky stories. And I imagine the premise is going to be each episode will cover like one of the books. So again, I'm just flagging this. I've not watched it yet, but it looks really interesting. So Uh, The series follows like eight hospice patients who meet up to tell these stories at midnight and uh, it's out now and, yeah, like I said, he's trying to make it into like a um, a long-running series that covers like all the different kinds of Pike's books and the content of those books and he wants to do that for multiple seasons and have it as kind of an anthology situation. So he said, Flanagan, the showrunner, said that, like, Nickelodeon's um, Are You Afraid of the Dark is an inspiration. So we're definitely in the realm of horror anthology. You can dip in, you can dip out. So the overall premise, as I mentioned, is the eight uh, hospice patients who are all young adults. So they're terminally ill and they live in a place called Brightcliff and it's set in Seattle and they tell each other these stories and then... I don't know too much more than that, but that was enough to hook me, to be honest. Uh, Flanagan, if you're wondering about his chops to pull off uh, something like this, he has done a couple of well-known horror films, which he directs, writes, and all of that jazz. So Absentia, Oculus, Hush, Before I Wake, Ouija, Origin of Evil uh, are all ones I've not seen, but he also did the Stephen King adaptation Gerald's Game, 
2017 and the sequel, I have a lot of thoughts on this that I won't get into now, uh, Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. So he's also worked on other anthology type series for Netflix, uh, The Haunting series, which started out as The Haunting of Hill House. And then there was based on that novel by Shirley Jackson. And then there was a follow-up series called The Haunting of Bly Manor, which was based on The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. So that was like an anthology season rather than per episode. So he's worked on that. And so that's interesting. It seems like he knows what he's doing. Uh, He also created and directed um, for Netflix. They really got a partnership going. Midnight Mass, which from all accounts is quite good. And uh, he's also working on something called The Fall of the House of Usher. So he, he's a bit all over the map in terms of his source material, which I'm kind of into, to be honest. So in terms of does he have chops to pull off horror and thriller and anthology and mystery, I'd say the answer is yes, from looking at the rundown of his CV. The thing I'm also quite interested in is the fact that the soundtrack for this show looks great. So I've not watched it, looked up the soundtrack because I wanted to play some music and it's, it looks great. It includes like Cypress Hill, Bush, that's a real throwback too, Duran Duran, Salt and Pepper, TLC, Groove Armada and that Pixies track I played before. So I'm wondering a bit about that. I'm quite interested, so I will check that out. Uh, But just wanted to flag that as something else of note that's cropped up that I hadn't really realised was connected to the Christopher Pike novels and now I am even more interested in it. So that's The Midnight Club on Netflix. Check that out if that sounds of interest. So that's kind of all the random bits and pieces I had to talk through. And so I think in a minute we'll crack on with kind of the feature review of the hour Um, which is, I went off and watched Don't Worry Darling, which is 1950s psychological thriller that's almost infamous at this point for everything but the film itself, Uh, which is to say I am not going to be mentioning Spitgate, Miss Flow, Salad Dressing, Shia LaBeouf, or Custody Papers being served, any of that. I don't want to talk about any of that. I'm going to focus on the film itself and my impression of it. I'm not going to pay any airtime to all the other guff. Uh, That doesn't mean I don't have opinions and personal thoughts, but you can buy me beer and I'll tell you off the record. But for the show, we're just going to look firmly at the film, which I have been anticipating for a long time because I really enjoyed Booksmart, which was Olivia Wilde's first feature film. And I'm a fan of Florence Pugh, Chris Pine, Olivia Wilde's acting work and directing work. And so this was announced a while ago as something she was working on. And like 1950s, psychological thriller, all of that are buzzwords that pique my interest. So I'd been keeping an eye on this. And then, of course, now everyone's keeping an eye on this. But let us talk about the film in a moment. But to get us into the mood, let's play a little something from the soundtrack. So this is the Oogum Boogum song. What a title. What a song. And it is by Brenton Wood. And we're going to play that to get in the mood for our review of Don't Worry Darling. In the marmalade forest, forest. Between the make-believe trees G'day, I'm Brent McKenzie. I played an in elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Ellen Dolby King. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. 
Yes, that was Oogum Boogum Song, which is like, if you heard that title, you'd be like, what is that song? But I think everybody knows that song, and it is by Brenton Wood. And that is to introduce our little review of Don't Worry Darling, which is the second film for actor-director Olivia Wilde. Her first feature, as I mentioned before, was like the teen comedy Booksmart, which was so smart, clever, funny, interesting, well-acted. Definitely recommend if you haven't seen it. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, it's the female equivalent of Superbad. I'm like, kind of just exists on its own as a good movie. So that was her first foray into directing after many different projects as an actor, which I won't go into here. Uh, so she, after doing Booksmart, she took a bit of a sharp left turn and decided to tackle this film, which is a tense, nostalgic, psychological, suburban thriller. So a little bit of a different tone. And I would say more ambitious for sure uh, in terms of the set pieces, the script, the um, the overall concept is a trickier prospect. Uh, I, I say from my armchair of, oh, that was really hard. Good on you, Olivia. But it was definitely a different kind of project than her first feature. So, however, it was written by Katie Silverman, who also wrote Booksmart. So the script for Don't Worry Darling was written by Katie Silverman, same writer. And the music there, as well as some great classic songs and an original composition that's sung by Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde. No, sorry, Harry Styles and Florence Pugh. Uh, There's an original song by them, which we'll hear a little bit later. There is also a score, and that music is by John Powell. And so I think he does a nice job of setting the scene of this tense, weird environment. So what exactly is this film? Uh, I've heard it referred as many things, but let's dig into the actual plot without spoilers. So it's uh, set in the 1950s and follows Alice, played by Florence Pugh, who is the devoted wife to Jack, played by Harry Styles. Uh, And they are a loving couple who live in the orderly suburban, who live in orderly suburban bliss in the town of Victory. Uh, So there's a bit of a hierarchy in the town, you know, who's closest to what and blah, 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 and who gets invited to what party. But everyone is, for the large part, happy to live in harmony in this kind of insular, protected little community. So... We start off sort of getting a sense of their lives. Jack works for a mysterious company doing something mysterious, uh, which the wives are discouraged to ask about. So all of the men in the town trot off to work every day and um, the wives don't really know what they're going on, what's what they're doing, what's going on out there. And they're discouraged from asking. And instead they pass their days drinking cocktails, vacuuming, cooking and shopping uh, and waiting for their significant others to come home so they can, you know, have a lovely meal, enjoy a cocktail, put on a record, etc. So everything seems pretty perfect, <laughs> I guess perfect in uh, quotation marks, uh, if creepy and a little eerie. But Alice does start to notice some things, odd details here and there, odd things start to happen. She has a weird vision or two. And so she gradually keeps kind of pulling that thread and walking further and further down the rabbit hole in her quest to find out what's really happening in Victory. So this is our basic premise. Idyllic town, seemingly happy couple, mysterious company. (laughs) 
Uh, so all the ingredients, we've seen these ingredients before. So how do they all mix up? Uh, let's talk about that. After we hear said track by Harry Styles and Florence Pugh from the movie, features in the film. Uh, so this one is called With You All The Time, original composition for this. And so let's hear a little bit of that before we dig a bit further into who lives in victory and what they get up to in their spare time. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero-G on 3 R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere, anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 ha, with three exclamation marks. That was with you all the time from the Don't Worry Darling original motion picture soundtrack. And that was Harry Styles. I don't know if Harry did anything in that. And Florence Pugh as well. So we're talking about Don't Worry Darling in cinemas now. Uh, let's talk about the inhabitants, the supporting characters of this town of victory. I mean, we can talk about them, but they don't do much. This film is... Florence Pugh. So she's the centre of this. She's Jack Nicholson in The Shining. She's the, the centre of, of this film and a lot of it hangs on her. And we'll get to how that goes in a minute. Uh, but we do have people who were paid to appear in this film. <laughs> so Harry Styles uh, is Jack, as I mentioned before, Alice's husband. Uh, can he act? I don't know. There was a couple scenes I thought he did okay. I think people are a bit hard on him. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's, he's in line for an Oscar, but I think uh, he's fine. He's good. He's pretty. Whatever. Uh, who else have we got? We have Olivia Wilde. So she plays Bunny, Alice's uh, close friend, neighbour, confidant. She provides uh, – so she's doing the whole director-actor thing. She was actually originally going to play – Alice, so Florence Pugh's role, and Florence Pugh is going to play her role, but then Wilde decided that she would prefer to have a younger couple at the centre of the film. So she kind of plays um, one of the larger side characters. She brings some nice lighter comedy elements. I would have liked more space for her to shine, but that's also because I'm a fan of hers. Uh, it is a nice reminder. She's, she's a good actress as well as a director, as well as good director in my mind. So that's Olivia Wilde playing Bunny. Uh, Wilde has a husband, Nick Kroll. So he's probably most known for his comedy work. So he plays Dean, Bunny's husband, provides some of the comic relief as you would expect. Um, but this movie doesn't really seem to want to leave a lot of breathing room for the comedy, to be honest. It's much more interested in being tense and brooding. Uh, but Nick Kroll is a nice addition here. Nice to see him spring up. Always pleased to see him in stuff. Chris Pine is another one to note. We've seen him in a lot of the movies that we've covered here on Zero G before. He is playing a bit of a sinister role. Um, he's Frank, who is kind of the boss, leader, founder of the Victory Project, which is kind of where what the town and everything centres around. So he is playing this kind of charismatic leader who kind of demands devotion, but get you know a little bit of a cult leader energy uh he his wife Shelley is played by Gemma Chan I really like Gemma Chan uh she's not got much to do here they kind of use her as a bit of a pretty set piece 
I guess that's actually kind of the point. Um, but I want to see her do more. I want to see her in more stuff. Uh, so, but she's good, serviceable. We also have Kiki Lane playing Margaret, who's another one of Alice's friends. And there's a little bit of drama around Margaret. And we also have a couple of newcomers to the town. There's a new couple that arrives and we learn a little bit more about them. And there's also some other couples that Alice is friends with. She's got like a little crew of, of women that she hangs out with. And we ha- we get sort of a sense of what the town's like through the view of Alice and her interaction with her other friends and the dinner parties they throw and the discussions they have. So the supporting characters are really there to kind of give us a bit of a flavour of what life is like in this town. And But as I mentioned, really none, no one has that much screen time, not even Harry Styles. Uh, I'd also argue they're not even that critical to the plot, but it's it it just creates a little bit of of the mood, I suppose. Uh, so it sounds like I'm being negative on this film, but I'm actually not intending to. Uh, let's before I launch into my thoughts on the film, because there's a little bit to unpack. Uh, I will let's just hear another another quick track. This is Shaboom. I'm loving all the. <laughs> titles of the songs I'm choosing to play today. Shaboom by the Chords. Uh, This is also played in Don't Worry Darling as part of the soundtrack. So let's take a listen to that and then I'll dig into my thoughts on the film Don't Worry Darling. Hi, I'm Andrea Thompson and I play Talia Winters, resident commercial telepath on Babylon 5. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R and I know what you're thinking. Yes, what am I thinking about Don't Worry Darling, which we started talking about before we listened to Shaboom by the Chords. So I think Wilde has chops. She pulled together, I think, a really atmospheric film. I think the performances are great. I'll be very disappointed if she doesn't get some good opportunities because of all the external drama that I have not talked about. Uh, I think it's, it's, it is a shame that this notoriety has really overshadowed what I think is a, is, a, is a fairly solid, interesting film. There's a bit of discussion to be had around the twist, which I won't say anything more about. And I think it does have its issues, which I'll get into, the main ones of which are the pace, the ending, and the procedural elements or lack thereof. But I do think that it is overall a really serviceable, interesting, thought-provoking film. It spends a lot of its time setting the mood. So I think there's some great establishing shots, getting into the daily routines and what life is like in Victory, setting up kind of Florence and if not her as a character, her mindset. So I don't get a sense of her as a character. That's okay. But I get a bit of a sense about her mindset. There's some nice music to back all of this, get us into the mood of this 1950s era. And I think the the use of the fact that Victory is in a desert town and it's isolated, It she Wilde makes the most of that. And I think there's some really great sequences that make use of the actual location elements, which is the desert, the terrain, the harshness, all of that juxtaposed with this kind of, you know, pretty idyllic candy-coloured town. So, yeah, 100% on the cinematography mood, super immersive, does manage to hint about some foreboding elements. I also think uh, straight up the sets are amazing. I loved Alice and Jack's house. I would live there. They had this, like, sunken lounge room the decor, it's, it was so great. And, I mean, all of that just goes into piecing together the kind of energy and mood of this time and place. So 
overall, I think the film is positioning itself as like a simmering psychological thriller. It's about (laughs) Florence's descent or Alice, sorry, Alice's kind of exploration, revelations, descent into madness, paranoia, all of that jazz. I mean, this is a well-trodden path, but it's really, it's well done largely due to the fact that Florence is a really wonderful actor. So Florence Pugh, she has the chops. This film hangs on her. She carries the scenes. She gives a really great performance. It's like quite unashamed. Like she throws herself into this and it becomes all the more obvious how little everyone else is given to do in the film. So I would say that following her is interesting, but because she's sort of in this naive role in a way that can get tiresome because you're just like, she's banging her head against a wall a lot of the time. And you're like, woman, just like try a different tack. But, and so overall, I think maybe the whole focus on the psychology, uh, I'm not sure this, I think part of the issue here is the script. I think we spend too much time dwelling in Florence's mind. I think, the pacing is off. There's like a chunk in the middle of the film that's kind of laggy in action and plot and motivation. And so it's kind of her wandering around bewildered and we get these like breadcrumbs of what's going on. And I think that the middle portion is so like bloated that possibly it would lose people and people would just be bored, quite frankly. Um, And it does pick up at the end the ending, I think it will be divisive, but there are some, once sort of Alex, Alice gets with it, there's a, some great tense scenes uh, really spearheaded by Pew, Florence Pugh and Chris Pine going head to head. So things do start to pick up towards the end of the film, um, thankfully. And I, I don't want to ruin the ending, of course, but uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's taps into some commentary that I wasn't expecting. Uh, I won't tell you who Frank is based on. Um, that might give a little away. I don't think it's wildly a spoiler, but it's 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 make, the movie's making a commentary and it's making more of a commentary than what I thought it was and that it did surprise me in a couple of ways. I think overall maybe it's too long or maybe it could have been a really great one hour episode of Black Mirror. I don't know. I I think bits could have been condensed or more action could have been introduced. I'm not too sure. I'm not going to profess that I could fix this film, quote unquote. And I think there's a lot going on that's great here. But overall, the actual narrative plot tension, I think, was just a bit off and, and doesn't quite, quite make it. So there's... Also the fact, and this would drive Rob absolutely mad, the procedural, and I won't tell you too much more than that, but there's procedural stuff and it is awful. It is not fleshed out. There's there's no, a bunch of it doesn't really make sense if you think about it for more than a minute, but I'm okay with it because this is a message movie. It's not meant to be about hardcore procedural elements. It's not meant to be hardcore world building or whatever. It's about a concept, an idea, a message. And so I was okay with the fact that it's pretty light on the procedural. Others may feel differently. There's definite shining influences here, not just in the teal bathtub that's used. I think it's definitely been inspired a bit by that kind of 
psychological exploration that we see a bit in The Shining. Um, and I think the atmosphere elements really hold the film together because, like I said before, there's maybe too much psychological exploration. I I have found myself reflecting on certain imagery or ideas that came up in the film. I mean, that's got to be a tick for it, right? And there was definitely comedic moments that I enjoyed but do yearn for more of those in the film. I think that the message that was trying to come through did come through for me and I think the movie is quite striking. I think that it's problematic for the reasons I've mentioned in terms of the pace and the script is could have been better, but I definitely don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's not badly directed. I think there's so much here that was really well done and executed and it, parts of it are really quite beautiful and and immersive. So I don't know. I'm conflicted on this one. <laughs> I do think the ending lost its way a little. It kind of hit the skids a bit and there's a couple of character moments. I was like, why did that happen? I, I, I don't know if, I've, if I left the cinema feeling satisfied or not, but maybe that's okay. Maybe movies don't always have to like wrap everything up in a bow and have us feeling satisfied. So that's not a criticism. It's just a comment. And overall, if I reflect, I think... I liked it. I think it's a solid film. I think it's probably something I would have watched and forgotten about. And that's what a lot of people watched, enjoyed and forgotten about. But because of all the other guff, uh, it's it's sort of stuck in a bit of a different different uh, kind of situation. I think it's, it's neither fantastic nor poor. Uh, I think that... Check it out. If it's if any of what I've said sounds uh, enticing to you, I don't. I definitely think it's it's worth a look. Uh, it's a bit of a shame. I didn't want to get into spoiler territory, but yeah, there's some interesting stuff that happens towards the end. I think that is probably about it for Zero G for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I and thank you so much to Alice Savage, our podcaster. Thank you so much to Rob, as per usual. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with you next week. Uh, thank you so much. And let's go out with Someone to Watch Over Me by Ella Fitzgerald. Let's really get that mood going uh, to round out the show that was played in the film Don't Worry Darling as well. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.